One of the greatest obstacles to becoming a better performer is thinking you aren't good enough, that the dreams and aspirations you have for yourself are just too far out of reach and beyond your capability. So in today's episode, we explore that feeling with someone who knows all too well the crippling effect of self-doubt and self-criticism. Hi, I'm Elaine Romanelli. I am equal parts from the Philadelphia area, from Manhattan, Kansas, and from California. I currently live in the other Manhattan, the Big Apple, New York City. And I am a performing artist and writer of music and words. Elaine has performed off-Broadway and on radio, as well as hosted an improvised streaming show and released three vocal albums of original music. She also teaches singers and composes church music. So, as you can see, Elaine stays pretty busy, to say the least. But she recognizes the importance of fostering collaboration and finding her own tribe of like-minded souls. Not only has it helped her in her creative work, but it has also been a source of support when her own confidence is tested and that self-doubt rears its ugly head again. I had a teacher say I had an unremarkable voice. I've had teachers say my voice and my body don't match. I've had a lot of teachers in every genre say that my voice just isn't right for the genre, including musical theater. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Elaine, to the podcast. It is so good to meet a fellow artist like yourself who approached me and asked to come on the podcast. So it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, what was it exactly that led you to this podcast and wanting to share your experiences? Oh, gosh. I think that we have a mutual friend, and that's how I found out about you. I love the title of your podcast, especially coming from a an actively working performer like yourself. And then my not remotely uh, hidden agenda is to also talk about art and activism and everyday activism. And so it just seemed like a good fit for all of that. And we're certainly going to be touching on all that. And I think over the last couple of years, I think we've all been in a place of certainly wanting to be creative again. You know, theater shut down and a lot of arts went away. So we're yeah. longing to be creative again. But I think we're longing to be creative in different and more impactful ways. And so I'm glad that you'll share your experiences and the things that are passionate to you. Me too. Now, the first story you wanted to talk about was that you decided not to pursue classical singing, and that led you to some feelings of, well, am I good enough? Am I really in the right place for this? Now, what was your initial interest in classical music and that type of singing? You know, I came up in a time and a place and maybe just a way that classical is best. You know, opera is hardest and therefore it's best. Um, which is 
which is not not true. Um, <laughs> not at all true, but that was I was just sort of in that silo of thinking, like, you know, um, you and I had spoken briefly about perfectionism. I think a lot of artists um, suffer from or have suffered from it or or a recovering perfectionist or as you said, a lazy perfectionist. So I wanted to do the hardest thing. I loved singing. I love the singing. Singing is my my deep, deepest soul connection and greatest passion and joy. I've learned to do so many other things for the purpose of supporting my my singing habit. So I started studying. I mean I clamored to study. Finally they let me study. And I started studying opera. Um, because that's sort of what you studied. And I sang other things on the side, but I studied opera. And I kept not pursuing things that I rightfully should have been pursuing, like young artist programs or auditioning for opportunities that would have furthered my opera career. And I think it was half feeling not ready or not good enough and half a conflict with myself that I wasn't really willing to look at. And then this wonderful thing happened where... A friend of a friend was in a coaching program to become a spiritual director. She was already a professional life coach, and she needed someone to be a guinea pig for the spiritual direction. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And then she dropped out of the program, and the program required you to coach someone for a year for free. And she said, tell you what, I'm already a coach. I'm going to keep my commitment to you to coach you for a year for free. I mean, wow. So <laughs> right? So I went to her coaching studio for a year for free, and we talked about this conflict, like what was going on. And I had to sort of painfully come to the conclusion that I wasn't going to love opera the way that I, that I wanted to, and it had to do with the characters. And I, I really do not want to disparage opera or anyone who loves opera. There is a lot to love about opera. I just had to let it be true for me that I wanted to be embodying a character with more agency and dignity than, than the characters in opera often have the, the female characters, especially the sopranos. I didn't want to sing for three and a half hours about some guy and then kill myself. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and in the most dramatic death right. possible, of course. <laughs> right. And, and die over the course of like, 40 long measures, you know, oh, singing yes. a high note on my side. Yeah. And and then there were other things about the opera world at the time. And again, um, if if your listeners love opera, love it fully with your whole being. But um, I was on some some like, you know, boards, groups, and people were just shredding current singers and comparing live singers to dead singers, you know, famous 1979 recordings. I did do an opera program and one of the coaches, he was a diction coach. And he seemed to enjoy reducing students to tears and publicly humiliating them. It just, you know, there was a lot that I thought, is this the fit for me? And I decided over the course of the year that it wasn't. And she said, there's a door that's your door and only you can close it in front of you and only you can walk through it. And I thought, what a lovely metaphor for anyone's personal journey as an artist or a person. So I decided to believe myself <laughs> and step away from that. And then I wish I could say that I instantly was like, I'm wonderful and there's a place for me someplace else. But that's been an ongoing journey and evolution. Now I can say that. Now I can say I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> Just like Stuart Smiley, but 
That was not an instant just dead water experience. And so in realizing this, the this opera journey wasn't really the path you wanted to be on. As an artist yourself in the art form itself, was there something in it that just wasn't resonating with you? Is there something that it just wasn't speaking to you in the way that maybe something else would? Yeah. So my mother was a journalist, which means that whether I wanted to be or not, I was a good writer. I am a good writer because we grew up having, you know, connotation versus denotation arguments at the table. So I had a great love for words and writing. And I went to an all-girls school, so I think I got to read literature by women and about women and girls, maybe in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. And so wanting to see stories that were more complex or more realistic or more focused on the woman I was becoming, I guess, um, there was a, a hunger for that. And it led me to start writing my own stories because then you have creative control over what the story is. And I tend to write stories that there's, my songs are stories. They're not um, atmospheric. There's not a lot of yeah, yeah, ooh, baby in, in my songs, although I probably should challenge myself to write a couple of those. But I wanted <laughs> the stories to, to be bridges into an empathy for the lived messy life. And it interests me in theater, it interests me in TV and film, and it interests me in songwriting. And that's really one thing that opera isn't about. It's not about being messy. It's about opulence. It's about yes. these, these soaring voices, which, believe me, is beautiful to hear. It, it takes a lot of training to get there. Yes. The sets themselves. I remember the very first time that I went to the Met, and the curtain rose, and it was the just, it was like a golden set, and, and just all the detail that went into it, it got an applause, just the set itself. Oh, yeah. And I had never experienced something like that. I mean, I've seen great musical theater and other things where the set looked great, and, and it was a part of it. But to have an entire audience just clapping for the set itself was an experience. Right. And so there there definitely is a, a visual and opulence that comes with opera, which is which may be one reason why they, they feel so proud about what they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the bit like when there's a new production, that's a big deal. Those sets stick around for, you know, decades. And there is a that's part of the it's part of the art form is Exactly what you're saying. Opulence, larger than life, not not true to life, not about life. And there are, you know, attempts over the years to infuse stories that's about life. And some people love that and some people hate it. But you're right. It's not endemic to the art form necessarily. And so when it comes to opera and you'd mentioned these teachers that would sometimes berate or just tear down past singers, current singers. Did you experience some of that yourself as you were learning? Oh, sure. I don't think anyone has ever studied classical music and not had that happen. I mean, I hope that that's not happening anymore. That's actually one of the things that led me to become a teacher was so that I could teach people from a different perspective, even though I didn't get that myself. I had you know, I had a teacher say I had an unremarkable voice. I've had teachers say I had too small a voice. I've had teachers say my voice and my body don't match. I've had a lot of teachers <laughs> in every genre say that my voice just isn't right for the genre, including musical theater. But I don't have maybe the most standard issue voice. 
which I think will mean eventually <laughs> someone's going to be like, you don't sound like everyone else. That's why we want you. 25 feels like nothing to me. So let's all stop pointing out. It's a quarter century. Come and dance with abandon. When you are, as you know, trying to fit products on a shelf, sort of metaphorically, and and be the soprano or be the tenor or be the sound that they're looking to hire, it's harder. So I have a, a light, clear, pure voice that can do a lot of things, but it don't sound like a standard issue, full lyric soprano. Yeah. So in many ways in life, I'm in between types. Well, I think that's so much of us. You know, this day and age of multi-hyphenants, we're not just one thing anymore, both in our life, but then also in our artistry. If you're in musical theater, opera, there are the different vocal ranges, there's the different genres of theater that yeah, so I'll be a many. comedian in one, I'll be the leading man in another, I'll be the bad guy in another, you know, and we go through these different character types and... As we get older, then that starts to change as well. And we go into new areas of, of, of acting and character development. So I think, yes, in any individual moment, we can be a couple of different things. But as we grow and as we continue to be artists, I think it's important that we recognize that none of us are really just one thing, whether it's a singer, an actor, performer, songwriter, that we can approach many different parts of ourselves and our artistry to express what we want. Yes, I love what you're saying. Yes, uh, the the downside of not being famous is not having the ability to make, you know, like I, I would love to call Sarah Bareilles and sing a duet with her. Uh, probably can't do that yet. But the upside is you can make choices to pursue multiple types, sides of your art form and inhabit different characters. So being an in-between types person has meant that I've had a, a varied and interesting career so far. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's not close to over. Let's see, <laughs> Let's see what the world decides. <laughs> well, that's right. As long as we have a voice, we can keep using it. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And as you left Opera World, classical music behind, was there a sense of failure or was there a sense of empowerment? Oh, definitely a more sense of failure. And in fact, it's really only been recently as I've connected with more and more people who have similar stories that I can really say it's really okay. I had moments, I had this wonderful moment where I was on a beach in Northern California and Northern California beaches are quite windy and cold and there's sometimes there's like low scrub brush it's not like the caribbean and i was on a vacation by myself and i had a lot of friends from northern california that just loved the beach and i was walking up and down the beach not relaxing at all <laughs> and it's by myself 
which I'm wildly rampantly extroverted, so I don't relax well by myself. And I just had this realization. I don't love the beach. <laughs> I don't love the beach. I don't love being by myself. This this is not fun. I'm this is not this is great for someone else. And I had this moment of clarity that it was okay to not like the beach in the same way that it's okay to not like Brussels sprouts. Like I like broccoli. I don't like Brussels sprouts. They're both really healthy and good for you. <laughs> They're both <laughs> cruciferous vegetables and it's fine. If I don't like Brussels sprouts, I don't have to demonize anyone that likes something different from what I like, and then they can have my share. And so I think that's how I started to feel about opera, which is opera's wonderful. It's okay that I didn't connect with it. It doesn't say anything about my worth. And as I live more into that, I meet more and more people who feel the same way about opera, about classical singing in general, who feel called to sing CCM uh, contemporary commercial music of various sorts who didn't feel that they were worthy of that or worthy of singing musical theater in a weird double bind, I guess. Opera's the best, and yet somehow I'm neither worthy of singing that nor anything else. But everybody's worthy of singing. Singing, singing and dancing are among the very few transcultural, transhistorical constants. So they've been in every culture that's ever been and probably will be. And so your birthright as a human is to sing and to move your body. And you get to decide how and, and where and when and whether or not you pursue it as a profession. And I just, I think the first thing that fell away for me was nobody gets to tell me whether my voice is good enough or not. Um, my voice is my voice. And if you want to teach me, then what I want from you is skills, skill development. I'm not here for you to be a, a queen maker. I'm not here for you to pass judgment or um, tell me whether I can be successful or not. I'm the only one that can decide that. I think that was the first thing to fall away for me. It's interesting what you said about the voice and about your voice is what it is. And you want to train, learn to better that voice, but you're not interested in changing that voice or it becoming something that is no longer you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, unlike a guitar, you can't swap out your voice. And I think um, some teachers in the past, or maybe some current teachers, feel like they get to say whether your voice is quote unquote good or quote unquote bad. And that sort of mystifies me. I believed it for a long time, but now as a voice teacher, I just find that baffling. Your voice is your voice. And what a teacher is there for or should be there for is to help you gain control over it, gain ease, find the joy and the ease and the efficiency in singing, and figure out its contours. What can I do with this particular voice? What's easy for me? What's hard for me? What is it that I want to do most of the time with it? And what is it maybe I want to save for a special occasion or a particular note, one note in a role or in a song? You know, what's this instrument like? And the instrument itself just is. You know, like a clarinet is a wonderful instrument and a cello is a wonderful instrument and they can play the exact same song in the exact same key with the exact same notes and they're never going to sound the same. Mm -hmm. One's reeds and one's strings and they're, they're close but no cigar and they're both wonderful. So I think teaching and learning and studying should be about curiosity. How can I, with high standards but also joy, let myself learn this instrument and have more fun 
using it. I think that's something that I've had to come to terms with myself is enjoying singing. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the, the further I get, and certainly COVID was a part of that, but the further I get away from singing on a regular basis, or the, then it doesn't, you know, it's not something I want to do a lot, e even just in my own practice. Like I used to mm. listen to music all the time. Now I mostly listen to podcasts, mm. which has been its own journey. And it's wonderful, the things that I get to learn. But that connection with music just isn't what it used to be which is neither good nor bad. It's just me growing and evolving as a person. Mm -hmm. And so my connection to music and to singing is different than it was when I was in high school, college, and so on. So it's a constant relationship that has its ebbs and flows. And I think that as performers, we have to give ourselves that freedom to both push and pull back from what we may have loved before and realize we can love something else without sacrificing our artistry. Yeah, we. I think there's several big things that I wish we were all taught from the get-go. One is your voice is your voice, and you get to learn how to use it. And it's nobody's place to judge it. You get to learn how to use it. And two is you're going to change. I used to only listen to classical music, and now I seldom listen to classical music. And that's okay. It's just what's interesting me at this moment, like you were saying, you, you listen to a lot of music and now you listen to podcasts. It's not good or bad. It's just you evolving. It's just you being in the flow of your life. And, and then I think the other thing that I really wish that we would do more with our teaching is this idea that it's joyful. Singing is joyful. Singing is one art form where if there's pain, that means no. <laughs> it's not like dance where like there, there is a certain amount of ignoring your body's natural responses. Singing and speaking should be sustainable, should be fun. They're physically pleasurable to let that sound literally reverberate through your entire body and into the room. And when you sing, everything that is alive or was alive, everything made from organic matter, literally vibrates with you. That's why singing together is so satisfying because you're moving together, even if you're standing still. And I wish we would focus on the joy part. Yeah, we want to learn and be better. Yeah, there are things to work on always, forever. Every single singer out there, no matter how famous they are, will probably tell you that. But it can be joyful. It, it is. It is joyful. We can let it be joyful. We can learn and grow and have fun at the same time. There is really no better place to have fun than in the audition room. However, the pressure of performance and booking the role can often get in the way of enjoying ourselves. In this week's audition story, Elaine talks about a time when she was determined to show her personality and bring a bit of levity to the audition process. And singing a song about farting certainly helped her achieve that goal. Now, to get bonus episodes like these is actually quite simple. All it takes is a monthly subscription to Why I'll Never Make It. Because while I do enjoy podcasting and producing this particular podcast is a labor of love for me, I'm a one-man production team. And it is both costly and time-intensive to put out an episode each week. 
So for just a few dollars a month, you'll not only support my podcasting efforts, but you'll also hear audition stories and other conversations with guests that you won't get in these free episodes. So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly or yearly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. That actually gets us right into the second story that you want to talk about, which is a not-so-joyful moment in your career as you were drifting away from classical music. You were a singer already, but now you wanted to incorporate songwriting into that. And so you recorded some albums and had a partner in that, but then eventually you became a solo artist. That is totally true. So early on, I had a partner, probably the worst breakup of my life was with that not remotely romantic partner. He just came to hate me and literally would not let me drive him home from our last gig. And we have never spoken since. That was bad. And then I hired someone to play a gig that was pretty lucrative and also to like, let's do this together as partners. Let's, we'll do your music. We'll do my music. Let's do this in an ongoing way. And he played the one money gig and then he was out. So I was feeling quite burned and like I need to be able to do this myself. And I had studied piano in high school. I think a lot of people do. I studied violin, piano, and voice and composition. But I had dropped piano somewhere in the mix. It was too much. And so I played a little. I had a few songs that I, I could still play, but I really hadn't played much at all for years. And I didn't want to take classical lessons because I wasn't looking to play classical music. So I just kind of tried to teach myself how to accompany my own songs. And I'd written these songs not playing piano and with the intention of having the first album was was with a dear friend Victoria Theodore who subsequently toured the world as a keyboard player with Stevie Wonder wonderful person and then she later became a singer-songwriter but that that's her arc she recorded with me on my first album so those songs were were for piano but then my second album was guitar so i had all these songs that i wanted to play out i had a gig coming up and they were all arranged for guitar, none for piano. So I was like learning how to play piano and rearranging the songs for a different instrument at the same time. And I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I should have stepped away from this one gig, but I didn't. And I got there and it was outside. I don't know if you've sung outside, but it's not the most fun. There's no wall to bounce your sound off of. It was on a hillside. So the ground was uneven. I had my traveling keyboard, which has organ keys, which don't have, like when you push a piano key down, there's a certain weight and organ keys don't have that. And because I love collaborating and I'm used to collaborating, but I wasn't used to it in this context, I was like, oh yes, X person, you can play with me or sing with me or whatever. So I just sort of set myself up for global failure, um, not testing my instrument outside on uneven ground, not being comfortable singing outside, not really being yet in my body with playing that particular type of keyed instrument, and then adding other people into the mix. And I think I 
forgot the chords or, you know, played just noticeably badly. And this DJ, my local DJ for this market, was like, oh, is piano your main instrument? And I didn't want to launch into the whole, like, I've been playing for a half minute. So I just said yes. And I don't know if that was the moment he decided he didn't like me or if it was some other moment, but um, DJs all over the country in the folk industry have played my music and he will never play me, never. Hmm. I can imagine because I've been on stage and I've gone up on lines or forgotten a lyric, you know? So, I mean, we certainly have those moments where our brain is elsewhere and it's like, we're trying to get it back. Did you know that it was going as badly at the time or was it only afterwards that you realized that it just wasn't going well? Oh, I knew. I knew. Maybe it didn't go as badly as I thought it did. Uh, my husband will, has been to a lot of my gigs and I'll sometimes think something is totally disastrous and he'll say, no, it wasn't. And that for years I didn't believe him. And then during pandemic year one, I did a show, I did a streaming show called Anything But because I needed a break from all the news, everything that was part of the situation. I just needed a break and I couldn't get one. I couldn't find a source of entertainment that wasn't referring to what was happening in the news or referring to the pandemic. So it was a half hour improv show. And the conceit was people pick a topic. I promise not to look it up and I will speak about it for half an hour. And I'll write like a minute long song about it. I would write the song in haste, you know, a half hour before, because I often would forget that I was supposed to have done that. And they were all sort of ditties like spatula, la 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 spatula. And uh, it was sort of an out-of-body experience because I was talking often about a topic I knew nothing about. Sometimes people would come on and type things that they knew. Sometimes nobody would contribute anything. I thought the sourdough episode would just be a giant hit. None of the sourdough people came. So I was talking and responding to comments and um, digressing and trying to remember my way back and checking the time. And often I would be like, well, that was a hot mess. And then I would watch the episode back and it was always much more cohesive than I thought it was. <laughs> so it's possible that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But for sure in the beginning, I did some gigs I shouldn't have done. And this is something we all struggle with as artists, which is when are you ready? And I've heard people say like, not until Sondheim would be, when he was alive, would be impressed with your self-tape. And that's a pretty, pretty high bar. Um, so when are you ready? Well, um, that's tricky because you only get better at performing by performing. Things happen, as you know, that only show up when you're in front of an audience and you can't replicate that at home by yourself. But you don't also want to show up at a time when your skills are not there. And I was unwilling at the time to let go of the momentum I had been building with this partner. I should have acknowledged it as a break. It was much more like when you suddenly break your ankle, that's six weeks of down. And you, you don't have the through line that you want to have, and there's nothing you can do about it. I wish I had acknowledged that for myself. Let myself do some like anonymous gigs in coffee houses where no one's paying attention. Get my skills up. Um, practice more at home. Add more elements slowly over time rather than just like, no, I'm going to play this gig. I'm ready. So that was the lesson learned the hard way. <laughs> 
And then that put me back into a place of like, oh, I'm not good enough again. And then that knocked another year off my confidence. I definitely hear you when it comes to recognizing a time when we have to either start over or maybe a reset. Because, you know, in my own journey, I came from Birmingham, then I went to Orlando performing at Disney. Then when I moved to New York, even just being in a different location means we're kind of starting back at square zero again. Yes, I'm bringing all of my talents and my momentum, so to speak, that I carry with me as far as the credits that I have, my resume, but no one in New York knew me when I first moved here. So I'm having to start over and I have to start small. Now, in my own mind, I'm like, well, I'm just going to audition for Broadway, which great, go for it. But just know that regional theater is probably where I'm going to start actually making my headway and getting known again. So there are these resets we have to do throughout our career and even our life. It, it, it's tough because especially when you've been going 60 miles an hour for so long to go back to a local country road where it's yes. 20 miles an hour, it, it you're just, ugh, you know, you're so impatient and you want to get, get back at it again. So I, I definitely understand that. Yeah. I found a metaphor for myself recently and it's that life is like a game of shoots and ladders and you're, you're climbing along and you get down a chute that sends you back to the basement. And I just decided that's going to continue to happen, but you can build yourself an elevator. <laughs> you can build yourself an escalator. You know, like you can say like, okay, life is a game of shoots and ladders. This is now taking me in a place I don't want to be, but all is not lost. Um, mass is conserved. Talent is conserved. Experience is conserved. And you'll learn something on the country road and see some sights along the way that you won't on the, on the highway. And it, I think that mindset does help to say like, okay, this has happened. What is the learning? What is the lesson? What is the opportunity here? I say that having literally just recently broken my ankle in April, and I was not happy about the six weeks of backing off from my fitness plan and walking, and I had to cancel a thing that was at Carnegie Hall, and like there was a lot of like, why, God, why? Uh, I don't know the answer. I can control that it happened. How do I make the most out of it? How do I still learn and grow along the way? And how do I not get so frustrated? But what, what I love about what you said was like, you know, you're going 60 miles an hour. You have to slow back down and it's frustrating. How do you manage that frustration? How did you manage that frustration? Well, for me, I also suffered an injury with my wrist almost a year ago. And so that was the first time since I think eighth grade that I had like fractured something and, and actually had to like stop. And I didn't have a full cast, but it definitely had to be set and I couldn't move it. And, and, and so, yeah, it was frustrating to not be able to have full use, full range of my body as, as I had been. And it's one of those where there was someone else who had gone through something similar and he started talking about it. And just knowing that someone else had been there, someone understood, even just that little bit for that moment, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, this will get better. As impatient as I was, I still was able to remind myself, this will get better and you'll get back and it's not going to to stop you or prevent you from doing things you want to do. You know, so I think... <sighs> 
I, th- I think you have to live in that frustration. And the frustration can do two things. One, it can motivate you to to push and to, to continue working on it. But then also it can remind you of what's important. And for me, right. that was another thing that it did. It, it reminded me, wait, I really do love this. I really do want to move more. I really do want to, you know, whatever it is that we're passionate about, it can remind us of what's important. That is a great way to think about it. One of the other things I tried to tell myself is there isn't only one road. There's only one path or one way to do things. There are stories about that. There's a great book about that called Range. And it's about how generalists survive and thrive in a specialized world that Right now, a lot of people like the specialist story. You know, we like the Tiger Woods story. We like the chess master story, but that's not the only way to to learn and grow. You can go off to this other field and that field informs the field you were in before, which you return to after a third field. And I've sort of done that inside of musical theater. And I just remind myself, there isn't only one path. It isn't only you know, do your local show and then do your regional show and then eventually get to Broadway. Some people, some people do walk on to Broadway. It's not that common, but what's necessary is that you get the skills and the confidence and the ease and the joy of of doing whatever it is, is your craft. And exactly the order of things might be different for me than it is for somebody else. Certainly it has been for me. And that's another thing I try to remind myself. All the elements need to be there, but they don't need to be in the same order as somebody else's elements. I think that's so true, which leads us into the third story that you wanted to talk about, which is this sense of of connection with others. You know, yes, we sometimes want to compare ourselves with other people and, well, why am I not like that? Or why am I not further along as they are? But there's also a sense of connecting with others and that that collaboration, partnership, support that we get from others. And for you, finding your tribe, that sense of belonging has been its own journey. So did you come from a, a strongly connected family? Is that where this sense, this this wanting to be connected with others, is that where it came from? Um. I mean, my immediate family, we called ourselves the Three Musketeers, and we had two mottos, all for one and one for all, and this too shall pass. <laughs> uh, it was my mother and my brother and I. Um, my parents split early, and then he died when I was pretty young. So so we were close, yes, but I think I've always admired, especially artists that feel it looks like they have like that group that they came up with, like you too. You know, they were in a band together since high school, and not very good, and then they got better, and then they got internationally famous. Or like, you know, the Groundlings people that like were nobody improvisers, and then they were on SNL, and now they're, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I've always admired people that had that strong tribe, and I and I haven't had that. Um, and it leads me to self-doubt, like, what is it about me? <laughs> Why don't I have that? Why have I not connected easily with someone else? And I think I may recently have found a couple answers. I'm trying them on for size. So have you ever heard of the Clifton Strengths Assessment? I have not heard of this. I assume it's a type of uh, test you take or whatever to assess yeah, your, your strength. <laughs> <laughs> Spot on the nose. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think it's used in business contexts more often where they 
want to see how what your strengths are, what the strengths of your team are. So I took this and I found it stressful because it's timed and you have to, sometimes I would say, well, neither of these is more true. So I'll put it in the middle. And I thought, well, this is poppycock. This isn't going to come up with anything. And then the five top five areas I thought were actually pretty spot on. But the fifth one confused me. The fifth one was inclusion. I thought that's not a strength area. And the conceit about strengths area is that they're the things, the top five are things you do so naturally. It's like breathing, maybe to the point that you don't notice them as strengths or recognize them as strengths. And a strength is also a weakness. And the weakness is you expect other people to have the same things that you do because you're not even aware that there's another way to be. And so I've been working with a coach again. Um, this time I'm not for free, unfortunately, but so we've been unpacking this like inclusion. What does that mean? And it means that I see a flatter hierarchy than other people. And I, I sort of knew this about myself, but I thought it was how I was raised, even though no one else in my family is like this. I just have always sort of believed in the dignity and agency and equality of all other people. Um, I guess I was just born with it like I was born with blue eyes. It's not something I can particularly change about myself. I get frustrated when other people aren't like that. Um, and But so, but so the, the correlation, why this is related is I don't often connect with people based on um, demographic details. Like I've never been a particular sports fan. Um, I care about my heritage, but not to the extent that I like, you know, I'm in Irish groups or Italian groups. I connect psychographically, which was a word I did not know about until recently, which is I connect based on shared interests and passion level, I guess, and excitement about doing and being someone who can be the change they want to see in the world. And so what this means is that, and I have a lot of interests. And again, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but like there's a group here in New York that meets to sight read music from the 1500s. I think that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I think that is the most random group I've ever heard of before. But it, but it's wonderful that you found that particular yeah, like, interest. So, so I like doing that. I love but it. then I also have done a couple of times this group that does vocal improv. We show up and you make sounds. Mm. But then I also, you know, I like musical theater, but I don't like it maybe in the same way as it. Like I don't know every possible show that there is, I, I maybe don't lionize some of the people that you're supposed to lionize. Um, but then I also like choral singing. <laughs> but then I also love to swing dance. So I, my interests are sort of split up in these ways. I was touring as a singer-songwriter, largely inside the folk community for about 10 years. And I finally, like with opera, had to realize, like, you know, it's a close fit, but it's still not it. And it was really other people telling me, like, you're just not folk enough. So I may have to construct my own tribe. It may be that my tribe is a person here and a person there. It's very hard to describe what someone would look like who's in my tribe because that's not how the connections are. Um, I love, love, love singing music with other people. That's probably my most favoritest thing, like singing harmony parts. Oh. One person to a part singing in harmony is just like my favorite drug in the entire world. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm currently in a, a 
a revival of 42nd Street, which is very classical, mm. traditional theater, but the harmonies in it, the, the, there's something about those 30s, 40s harmonies and style of music that when I'm specifically thinking about one part where these four men are on stage, they're dancing as well, but they're also singing in four-part harmony. And it's just that close-knit harmony. It just kind of puts a little chill down my spine and just makes me giddy to hear yes. that type of close harmony. And it it's a very emotional, physical response to what is actually, you know, very easy. It's just, you know, high, mid, low. But I, you know, there's just something that music does and harmonies in particular that can just elicit such a, a response. Yes, yes, yes. It's delicious, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. just the yummiest thing there is. It's way better than sliced bread. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting that you talk about needing to find your own tribe. I think that that's something that over the last few years I've had to come to terms with. There's a sense of I question my own ability to connect with others, to find and make friends. And so that, that's something I'm in therapy for. Again, not free, but I'm Aren't, you know, I know. <laughs> work, working, right? working through my own ways of, of connecting and communicating. And the goal of it is really to be a better version of myself, which is very inward and somewhat selfish, but I think in the best way possible, because if I'm being the most authentic and real version of myself, only then can I start connecting with other people. And I've noticed that relationships, you know, have come and gone, and all of them have taken bits and pieces of me. And some I've been able to get back and maintain, others have gone away. And these different pieces of myself that are now out there and I'm having to deal with what's left over, I think is part of my own search for, well, wait, what's left? What do I have? What is me now? And finding that tribe that can relate to, to some, some scattered person like myself can be difficult. So in creating your own tribe, did you then start to find others that could actually relate to it? Well, first of all, I I suspect that those parts are all there still inside of you. They just may be locked in a in a room that's farther away down a, a different hallway. But definitely, yes. I, I think you're probably just perfect exactly the way you are. And not the tiniest bit broken. And maybe you feel scattered sometimes, but you seem pretty darn together to me. So just <laughs> just for what that's worth. Thank you. You know, the tribe thing is I think we experienced this in the pandemic. Um, people are meant to be in community. And I am especially meant to be in community. I'm really extroverted, meaning being with people replenishes me. And I need people to, to be filled back up. I need people to be at my most resilient. I took my last vacation of the year probably to go see some friends in Seattle. And mostly what I did was sit around and talk. And I came back and I had better workouts than I'd been having for months. I think because I was filled back up from, from being with people. So that's what tribe is about for me. It's about support for each other. It's about a place to go when you're down and people who will celebrate you when you're up. You know, we've all in this industry, have had experiences where if, if you succeed, someone's unhappy for you. So I think that there is research that shows that it's 
very hard to succeed on your own. Most people succeed because they're part of a group that succeeds or a project that succeeds, or at the very least, they have someone in their life who believes in them in such a steadfast, unwavering way that when they don't believe in themselves, that belief is still there for them, like a subterranean river waiting for them to access it. So that's what I'm searching for in tribe. And I guess I kept hoping, and maybe part of me still hopes that I'm going to find the music scene that this particular musical weirdo fits in. Maybe it's, you know, punk reinterpretations of music from the 1500s, but with the musical theater (laughs) flair. With some improvised harmonies thrown in. (laughs) (laughs) And lots of talking, because I love to talk. I don't know. Maybe the thing that I love exists and I just haven't found it, or maybe it doesn't exist and I'm supposed to help create it. I don't know. I am married, and I really did not expect that for myself. So what I'm really hoping for is to find a musical partner. I think my current dream is, have you ever heard of the Civil Wars? Is that a group? I'm, I'm yes, not familiar. It, it was a group. It was two people that came from different genres. They were put together in a songwriting camp where you get paid to write for other people. And their music they wrote together was better than the music they wrote separately, in my opinion. And they skyrocketed to fame and then crashed and burned, I think for personal reasons. I don't know if they didn't like each other or their lives took them apart from one another, but they sounded so good together that close harmony you were talking about just they just fit like hand in glove and i love 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 to sing close harmony so my dream is that i will find someone else who wants that and we'll work together well and that will be at least one component of my performing life and then my further dream is to is to find or create a tribe of people that are psychographically like me that that believe in equality for other people for all people that want to approach life joyfully, even if there's hard times that are willing to work on themselves, I guess, and willing to bitch and moan and rant and move past it when they're having a down day and and let me do the same and just be on my team. I think that would be really cool. So I I don't think I have it yet. I think I have pieces of it. Yeah, I think we're all trying to just get pieces along the way because because you know un- until we die we're not going to finish the puzzle if we ever do but it's our life is just gathering the puzzle pieces and finding them as they come along and it sounds like that this finding a tribe or this journey to finding that has been one of your puzzle pieces and it it also sounds like that you've been wanting to help others find their puzzle pieces? Are, are there ways in which you're finding a way to support and advocate for others as well? Absolutely. Um, for sure, as a teacher, as a voice teacher, I love helping people unlock their joy in singing. And you see people just blossom into like, wait, I'm allowed to sing this? Whatever it is, it's an Adele cover or it's a Lizzo cover. Like, yes, you're allowed to sing it. That's one way. The inclusion part has led me to sort of a lifelong commitment to activism. And one of the things I'm trying to do now is just help people feel empowered and excited about what they can do, how they can show up in the world in a way that will make a difference. I think that's something that's important to each of us is I want my time here on earth to matter. I I want to count. And I think what's been happening with the pandemic and 
political upheaval in the world and the sort of fighting and, and uh, conflict in our own country and the dichotomizing of our political views is that people feel overwhelmed. They feel despairing. They feel like, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. And the answer is you can do what one person can do. You can, I wrote a song called One Small Drop, which is about that, which is you can be one drop and that drop is going to make a ripple and you don't know who the ripples are going to reach, but there's something that you're already good at, that you already love doing. That's already easy for you and fun for you. And you can do that in the course of your life. And that can be a form of activism. So I was thinking about how to talk about this and I, I came up with another metaphor. I think that we could rethink activism and stop thinking of it as a crisis, which I don't think professional activists are are helping with that. And instead of thinking like, oh, I got to drop everything and run with my bucket and put out the fire, we should just integrate it into our lives starting this week and then for the rest of your life until you die. (laughs) (laughs) And there's going to be maybe entire years when you're dealing with family things or professional things where you have to step out. But if more of us did this, if we distributed the work among more people and made it easier and more joyful, we would be in a very different place in this world. So I would like to invite everyone to think of activism less like putting out a fire and more like a pedicure. Hmm. Everybody handles their toenails. (laughs) Some people give themselves a pedicure and it's sort of perfunctory and they get it done at home and that's that. Some people have like a whole polish system and it's like their Saturday night in. Some people do it on their way to or from a job every week with the same person, the same routine. Some people it's not as frequent, maybe once every six weeks or so. Some people love to go with friends and it's a big event and maybe there's bubbly involved and it's really social. The point is everybody does it and we can call it cutting your toenails or we can call it a pedicure. And you get to choose the level of time and money and social involvement that works for you in your life. And I think activism can be like that. I think we can look at our lives and say, well, what is it that I like doing? Um, As you can tell, I like talking. (laughs) So I'm good at door knocking, but I live in a state where there's no door knocking. Well, how else can I communicate? Well, I've been writing a lot of postcards. There's groups that that specifically do that. Postcards to voters.org is one. I also write letters. There's voteforward.org writes letters. Because it's easy for me. I put on one of the many TV shows I'm currently watching on all of the streaming sites. And I watch a few episodes and I write letters. I decided even to buy colored pens to make it more fun. And I decorate a little bit. I never thought I'd be a colored pen person, but here I am. And so I write letters. Uh, Someone else might be like, I do not want to write letters. Fine. Maybe you're great at texting. You can text as activism. You can call. You can bake as activism. You can, you know, anything that you're good at and you love can be activism. And art as activism goes back to the beginning of time. And how you approach other people in your art, that too is activism. So let's say you're casting. You can cast in a way that includes more people. Let's say you're in a theater and you notice that they're not offering equity contracts to any women. You can be the male voice that points that out. 
you know, like there's lots of ways to be involved. You can say, I only want to work on one particular cause or kind of thing. Fine. Well, I think it's important what you're talking about, whether it's our political selves, our creative selves, our just life and relationships in general. It's about being purposeful and intent upon connecting with other people and actually making a difference. And yes, yes. So, so many times I talk with guests, certainly we focus on the arts and that's what this podcast is about. But at the same time, we can only be the best artist we can be if we are also the best person that we can be. And our lives are so much more than just what we do on stage or yes. in a recording studio. Our lives are really the impact that we have and the the purpose that we put out there into the world. And it sounds like that as imperfectly as you are, as I am, as all of us are trying to find our way, that it sounds like that you're at least on a path that is making an impact and is aligning with who you are becoming as a person. I love how you say that. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. You're absolutely right. What an excellent synthesis you've just given all of us. We are the sum total of our connections. We are all in community, whether we acknowledge it or not. Unless you get a shovel and you go off in the woods and you leave all your wireless devices behind, we're in community. We are in our careers. We're in our families. We're in our friend connections. We're in community. And we have a choice about how we express ourselves how we strengthen those connections, how we do something to make the world better for ourselves, for the people that are coming after us, for the people around us that might be more vulnerable than we are. We can extend a little bit of ourselves and our time. And most of us have a little love to give. And the thing that I find extraordinary is that if you're doing it from a place of generosity and in a way that is manageable for you, it's replenishing. It's one of the things that fills you back up to be that impact in the world, to strengthen those connections, to help the person next to you, even just to extend a kindness to somebody. So a long time ago on the Bay Bridge, the toll was only a dollar. And sometimes people would go through phases where they would just randomly pay for the person behind them because it was a dollar. And what a little kindness, you know? And you're right. It's about growing into the person that you are becoming, that you want to be, that the many ways that you can show up in the world. What a wonderful way to think about it. Well, I have certainly enjoyed our connection during this conversation. And, Me too. And it's been such a refreshing conversation to have, huh. as, as you say. And so I, I appreciate you filling up my tank. And I hope that uh, you that are listening, that you've been filled up as well. And I, I greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. Such a pleasure, really. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me and Elaine Romanelli today. And don't forget, the conversation continues with that audition story, as well as the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next week for part three of Bettering Ourselves and Bettering Our Careers as we talk more about why I'll never make it.